0: Hildy is a body, chain-smoking, seventy-something former journalist who lives on the Upper West Side in an apartment that has a portal back to 1973. Time travel has rules, though, and Hildy breaks them by traveling back with slacker healthcare aide Trista. Now both women will have to come to terms with their pasts before they lose their chance at having a future. From Ahoy Comics comes Elisa Quitney's *Guilt*. That's G-I-L-T a comic book that's Sex in the City Meets the Golden Girls by way of The Twilight Zone. Grab a copy today from your local comic shop or your local bookshop, or you can get one by visiting alisaquitney.com guilt, that's G-I-L-T, or of course you can get one from the big online retailers, and I've put a link in the show notes to make the whole process easier for you. Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King,
1: a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sandman number 27, Seasons of Mists, Chapter 6. Uh, writer, of course, Neil Gaiman, Kelly Jones, the penciler, Dick Giordano as inker, Daniel Vazo as original colorist, Todd Klein as letterer. Alisa Quitney as assistant editor and Karen Berger as editor. The cover date of this one was June, 1991. Before we get into this issue, as excited as I
0: am to get into what is the penultimate issue of Season of Mist, but before we get there, we've got a really exciting announcement Thanks to our super awesome audience, we have hit a major, major crowdfunding goal on Patreon. And so Brent and I have uh, already started doing an issue-by-issue series on the first volume of Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. Uh, we've been having
1: an absolute blast doing this. So it's it's great to have the excuse to revisit Swamp Thing. And we really appreciate all the donations um, and support from our audience. Uh, Patreon sponsors uh, for letting us uh, find the time to make this happen. Um, And it's your support that really helps us make the time for this. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for making that possible. I mean, we get to have a ton
0: of fun making them and we hope the people in the audience as well will have as much fun as we are listening to them. So if you are interested in hearing us do that, if you're interested in hearing us talk about Swamp Thing. Uh, also, I should say as well that Brandon and I just finished our bonus series on At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. And actually, also right now, concurrent with doing Swamp Thing, Valerie and I are also doing a bonus series about the Star Trek The Next Generation movie. So there's a lot of bonus series happening uh, or just wrapping up on Patreon. And if all or any of that interests you and you are not already with us on Patreon, we do hope that you will join us. And you can do that by checking us out at patreon.com slash ClayTempleMedia. Uh, There's always a link in the show notes as well. But let's turn our attention to the issue at
1: hand here. And the issue at hand here, Glenn, is what to do with this key from hell. For hell. Correct, hell hell. right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: And uh, this one follows on immediately from the previous issue. And so uh, we're actually now going to get the resolution to this whole you know business of what to do with the key to hell. Uh, though what we're not going to get in this issue is the resolution to Dream's uh, purpose in going to hell in the first place. We're going to have one more issue for dealing with that. But this issue opens with another establishing shot of Dream's palace, and it is the same palace that we saw last time, seen across the same lake, though it does appear that we maybe have moved to our right about two feet for this one. At least that's sort of what it (laughs) seemed to, to me, Brent. But really, the big difference is that it's the daytime, and to be more precise than that, it is sunrise. Inside the palace, we are in the room of Nuala the Fairy. Her brother Clericon has come in to wake her up so that they can go together to Dream's announcement about the fate of hell. Clericon has not slept all night. In in fact, he's he's quite drunk. He's been up all night having sex with a member of the Egyptian delegation. Uh, Not one of the gods, but uh, a human who's either a temple priest or a a dead king or something, he says. But this is cool to see that these delegations have actually brought uh, servants and so on. Uh, We then follow Nuala as she makes her way to a grand hall. But on the way, she passes Bast, explaining to Anubis that uh, she doesn't actually know where the missing member of the Endless family is. She also passes Merlin, talking about how weird it is that none of the Greek gods showed up to this. And then she passes by the Norse delegation. And here, Loki says something to her, and a very, very hungover Thor immediately puts a chokehold on Loki because he is not permitted to speak to anyone other than Thor or Odin. And then this, I don't know, it's not quite a walk and talk, but this journey, at any rate, culminates with Nuala's arrival in this grand hall. And this takes up uh, two pages. It's a big two-page spread. It also functions as the title page for the issue. And Brent, I have to say that I just love this scene here that we get in this two-page spread. I just love this so much. I mean, the the domed ceiling of this room is, meticulously decorated and then below that we have a depiction of everyone who is here and and that depiction itself is super interesting
1: no it's a it's a great depiction it reminds us of the many members um, of the various delegations who we had seen before, but also there's some others scattered in there, which I, I love. I particularly like the, uh, the guy with the tabard and the snakehead. What's his deal? <laughs> What's he about? Uh, why don't we have a whole comic about him? Not just as an issue of Sandman. Why do we not have a whole comic about snakehead man? It, it's really great and kind of, yeah, the large palatial room, um, and the cherubs who are hanging a cloth. It's, it's, it's really kind of a great two-panel, uh, two-page splash uh, image,
0: and much of the delegation is actually kind of uh, in, in shadow. Uh, maybe not technically in shadow, but we're seeing more of their silhouettes because they're in the the background. But we can still distinctly see uh, this person we have decided to call Merlin back there. But the shape of one of these people looks like a minotaur, so that's cool.
1: I want to know who that is. The minotaur, or um, whoever that is, is fantastic. A couple things of note um on Nuala's stro- waking up and strolling here. Um I love, in the first panel, we are told, which makes logical sense, that Dream has decided that day should dawn. The Clericon says, our Fost has finally seen fit to let the sun rise. Which, of course, it's the Dreaming. It's not like it's hovering around a sun. He decides when... The day ends. I wonder – or when it begins. I wonder how long of a night he had. How much time did he spend trying to figure out what to do, which is something which we can touch on later when we finally see Dream. But uh, Clericon mentions uh, that his companion for the evening, Seneferu, was perhaps a member of the royalty or a priest – And uh, Leslie Klinger in his annotated Sandman notes that Seneferu was the name of the first king of the fourth Egyptian dynasty around 2000 BCE. um, And he was the greatest pyramid builder. Um, He did not build the Great Pyramid, but he built a number of pyramids which I thought was kind of fun. Um, And I think that also then Clarican referring to him as some kind of dead king or priest. uh, It it works for a pharaoh, right? Because he uh, is both a (laughs) priest and a dead king and in a way a god. So there's lots of ways in which it makes sense that this is Seneferu. Yeah, this really made me wonder who
0: are the, you know, I said servants earlier, but attendants perhaps is the, the better word, but I, who, who are the attendants for these other delegations, right? Like, did Odin and company bring some mortal attendants as, as well? Uh, what about the fairies themselves? Well, I guess we saw that they didn't bring anyone with them, but, you know, I just wonder if the other delegations have brought people with them. We we haven't seen any of them and we, we aren't going to see any of them, but I would actually be really interested in a, a kind of upstairs-downstairs version of this story What we get <laughs> (laughs) to see those attendants a bit more
1: no it'd be great um and i think you know it reminds me of uh we do see in the egyptian delegation bash uh the the household god and it's kind of like who who are the people who don't rise to the level of household god but are still sort of divine who are there um and do they all get to hang out and have coffee downstairs while the big dinner is going on um, as you said kind of an upstairs downstairs or Downton Abbey kind of a feel to it. When we do see the return of the wizard and faceless man in a script and in, in the actual story, and we're still not entirely sure who those are, if that's Merlin um, or not. Um, but apparently according to Leslie Klinger, They are called out uh, in the script by Neil Gaiman merely as echoes of the characters that Kelly Jones had drawn in the uh, prior issue and that they are not described in the script for the earlier panel and – don't appear to have any special significance. So uh, Leslie Klinger has no answer for us there. There may not be an answer other than whatever Kelly Jones was thinking at the time. Uh, if anyone uh, gets a chance to ask Kelly Jones, uh, please uh, let him uh, find out from him and let us know on the Reddit or the forums. Uh, Cause I would really like to appreciate knowing uh, what the origins are. Um, and also the more I look at it, the more I really want my next costume to be this faceless man because I, I just love the amount of uh, lift he's got in the back of his cape it reminds me very much of a costume i had when i was dracula when i was probably like eight or something where it was just one of those great almost uh one of those conical devices we put around dogs to prevent them from like biting it you know wounds after um uh, certain operations but i thought that was Just fantastic um, to have them there and also to have them talking a little bit about what's going on. They do notice, note that the Greek gods are not there, and perhaps they know something my people do not. I'd seen reference elsewhere that uh, at this time, the Greek gods who were most at play in the Wonder Woman comics um, had decided to go off and do something else in that storyline. So that might be another place where Neil Gaiman is kind of waving at the greater DC continuity as far as we know it. It's also an excuse not to bring the Greek gods in themselves.
0: Yeah, which, you know, as someone with a classics degree, to me, that's kind of a shame. Although it's a it's a full house as it is, but still, I would have loved to have seen that. And yeah, maybe we'll, someday we'll do a bonus episode or something where we go check out and see what those characters were up to in, in Wonder Woman at this time, uh, you know, for a bonus episode
1: or something like that. Leslie Klinger also gives us an excerpt from the script. Uh, when we see the Norse gods, um, Neil Gaiman notes Uh, In the script, quote, Thor looks terrible. He's got a thundering hangover, quite literally a little stubble, blear eyes, and a foot above his head is a small rain cloud. Loki looks thoughtful. He's the only one of the three Norse gods to turn around and notice Nuala. He looks slightly less sly and foxy, more flame-like. He's madly planning his escape, but he singularly failed to get laid and fancies the heck out of Nuala. On the far right is Odin. In his hat and cloak, looking serious, worried, preoccupied, which I think is just it's a great depiction for all three of them, Um, not just as the characters in this comic, but also just wonderful ways to discuss the personalities as we um, have been given from Norse mythology for those three particular gods.
0: This breakdown among these three characters is essentially the same breakdown that you get in the, the standard trio formula that suffuses British school stories. Though we did not actually get that in the literal school story that's here in the middle of Season of Mist, but you know, people are familiar with this, of course, most famously in, in Harry Potter, where you've got the the sort of baseline character who's often very serious and perhaps broody and moody. And then you've got the muscle. And and then you've got the the brain, right? And that's Ron and Hermione in Harry Potter terms. And uh, yeah, it's great to see that Gaiman is thinking along those lines here, actually, in the way that he's depicting them, which of course makes me yearn for a school story about these characters. Someone probably has written that. I just need someone in the audience to let me know what that series of urban fantasy novels is so I can go <laughs> check that out. And I would love to. But but really, on, on a more serious note here, uh, yeah, I, we, we should think back to the second issue in this story arc that opens with Loki. And we talked at the time about how that in itself is interesting, how it signals to us that we need to be paying attention to Loki. And it's clear here in the comments that Gaiman makes that that is true. And well, maybe we're going to get a little of that at the end of this issue as well.
1: Yeah, uh, we might be revisiting that fairly soon. But as you said, this all leads to Noala kind of walking by others who are talking. Uh, It's kind of a the audience view of a Aaron Sorkin moment before they gather in this great hall. Um, but then we cut away to the, our host who is not in the hall, but is elsewhere up in a tower uh, contemplating exactly what his next steps are.
0: Yeah, this is really beautiful. We get this awesome establishing shot here where we actually see Matthew the Raven flying up to the top of one of the palace's domed spires. It's an absolutely gorgeous panel there. I mean, really, just this palace is amazing. Like, I would I would like to live there, if anyone knows where it is and uh, how you can, I don't know, is it on Airbnb, I guess is the question that I've, that I've got. But <laughs> at any rate, yeah, Dream tells Matthew that he's been up all night. Of course, some of that we saw last issue, but mostly he's been a Alone, mulling over his decision, which he describes as treading a path through mist. So there we get some reference to uh, part anyway of the, the title of this story arc. But what this scene is really for is for the angels Duma and Remiel to finally come to Dream for a private meeting. And Remiel has a message for Dream from the angel's creator. And the message is that hell must be hell. It cannot be left closed. It cannot be given to one of these other pantheons. And what the creator wants is to take over hell directly, and in fact, to put the angels Duma and Remiel in charge of hell as heaven's viceroys, essentially, or or regents, actually, is I think the word that we're going to get in the text. And at this point, then, Dream makes his decision, and he hands Duma the key. In the next scene, we're going to hear Dream's rationale. But The heart of this scene really is Remiel's reaction to the message that he relays, because he does not want to go to hell. I mean, he really does not want to go to hell.
1: He really doesn't at all. Um, And there's a lot of great bit of layering and references that Neil Gaiman does in this uh, interaction. Dream is uncertain about what the next step is. As you said, Remiel then has to deliver the message, and Remiel is learning the message That as he is saying it to Dream, he doesn't actually know what it's going to be. This isn't someone who, you know, has prepared letter that he has to deliver. Um, I mean, I guess in some ways it is. It's just he doesn't – he hasn't read the letter. He doesn't know what it's going to say. And Remiel's phrasing here um, in trying to deny the creator and – of him becoming responsible for hell, uh, mirrors that as Leslie Klinger notes, um, and others as well, uh, very much the story of Jesus, um, in the garden at Gethsemane in which, uh, he briefly considers and and wonders if he could have the cup pass over him and not go through the suffering and torment he's going to have to endure and go to someone else. Ultimately, Jesus decides He does have to take responsibility for that. Remiel, though, does not want it and basically shirks it off and says that he will rebel just like Lucifer did. In so doing, Remiel now has rebelled and now should go to hell in a way. Um, And so we see him also descending where before their feet would not touch the ground, Remiel descends as he refuses the creator's will. Duma, though, with tears, um, and without speech, because Duma does not speak, decides to lower themselves to the ground and accept the key, um, so that Remiel does not have to. Um, and so Duma willingly, um, takes the step forward. Uh, While well, Ramiel kind of falls into the role, Um <laughs> so my understanding of all this, Glenn, is that Duma is now the one who actually has the responsibility. To be in charge of hell and Remiel is there to assist, and Remiel is there only to assist because he doesn't want Duma to be alone. But Duma only accepted it because Remiel refused to accept it. So uh, maybe Remiel should have just, you know, angeled up and taken responsibility to begin with. But I don't know. Uh, what are your thoughts on any of this?
0: No, I, I agree. And I think there's a real great, uh, real poignant part of, of, of Remiel's monologue here in this reaction when he says, well, what difference does it make if I rebel? If I rebel, the place I go is hell. And well, that's where I have to go if I'm following orders. So it all amounts to the same thing. And I mean, that's a real sort of bleak uh, 20th century Eastern European drama, I, <laughs> I think, situation to, to be in here where... He could have just said, "Yep, that's what I'll I'll do. I'll take this responsibility and gone to hell," and because he's going to go to hell anyway. But yeah, now he has also. Cursed himself because he he really has rebelled. I think the, you know the act of saying "I will rebel." I can't believe you know this is happening. The anger, right, that he's expressing at the the orders he's receiving from uh, the creator is, is tantamount to rebellion, and so he will never be able to leave hell. Uh, perhaps Duma might. I mean, all of this, of course, is precipitated by the realization that being sent to hell does mean that you will never be allowed back into the Silver City, never be allowed back into the creator's presence because you're going to be tainted from having been in hell. But Remiel has closed himself off from the creator ever really changing his mind about that, I think. And it's a it's a sad story.
1: It really is. And Remiel is very much damned if they do, damned if they don't, Right. But uh, I think the image – and it's not my favorite panel, but I will mention and call out here that the panel where we see Duma with kind of tears streaming down his face um, I think is quite effective at conveying kind of the sorrow that Duma feels both for himself as well as for um, his colleague Remiel is – it's very palpable um, and it speaks volumes there. Um, And I think it's very well done.
0: Absolutely. I think Gaiman sells the emotion of this but by, in fact, showing us two different emotional responses to being exiled to hell, right? One, anger, and the other, sorrow, right? Because none of us, reading this comic right now, have the experience of having been in the presence of the creator. None of us have been in the Silver City and could understand what it would be like to then lose that, right? To be exiled from that, to be told you're never going to dwell in the grace of the creator again, where at this point now, just your existence is a form of punishment, is a, a personal form of hell for you. right? None of us can uh, sympathize with that in the sense that we've none of us have ever experienced that. But nonetheless, Gaiman imagines what that would be like and shows us these characters experiencing that for themselves and gives us a real breadth of response to that. It's I think just absolutely brilliant storytelling. I, I I just adore this part of really all of the sandman. It's just an absolutely brilliant move here. I do also, love the depiction of the mechanism of the message where uh, Remiel does not, as you said, Brent, have like a letter that he's going to read or something like that. He receives, uh, I guess, what we could describe as a telepathic communication from God. And we see his his eyes kind of roll back in his head. And uh, there's a a sort of light that goes around him as he's receiving the message. And he's even talking about the message as he's receiving it. I love the way that that um, bit of the, the metaphysics of how this works was depicted as well. I thought that was
1: very cool. Yeah, it definitely was very cool. And I think we, in the range of emotions, as you said, Glenn, we really get to see the grieving process play out um, with both of these angels. We get to see the disbelief and the bargaining and the anger and then the sadness and eventually the acceptance.
0: That's a really awesome observation. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but that's exactly what we get It is the five stages of grief. That's, uh, that's a brilliant observation. Well, we're going to carry on here with Dream and the Angels as we get into the next scene, because they all arrive in the audience hall to announce this decision. Of course most people are disappointed or or frustrated or upset by this decision because you know they wanted hell right that's what they're <laughs> that's what they're here for and so dream explains and i think it's actually worth just reading the text here uh, so here's what dream says i did not create the hell of lucifer nor the realm of which it is a shadow if its creator wishes to take it back that is its creator's affair not mine And I have questions about this, Brent. And maybe just the first one I'll pitch to you here is, do you think that Dream feels compelled by this creator's request? Or is this really just an easy way for Dream to not really have to make a decision that he is having trouble making? Is he persuaded by the rationale of the argument? I guess really the question I'm asking here, Brent, is why did Dream make this decision?
1: I think Dream took the easy way out. That's my interpretation. And, <laughs> and here's here's why. You know, I, there's a lot kind of layered in this. And, and I was thinking a lot in terms of content uh, creation. I was thinking about creator's rights. I started thinking about comics then, and then the idea of work for hire, and I started thinking about it. And, you know, I'll always kind of flip back to thinking about copyright law. Uh, I apologize to you and the listeners for this. I always want to hear about copyright law, so you you owe me no apology. Once the creator, you know, has given something up for something else, like it's just, it's not, the creator gave it to Lucifer, and Lucifer gave it to someone else. The creator doesn't have the rights to this anymore, unless Lucifer didn't really have all of the bits of the right. But then I began thinking in terms of uh, the idea of dream and dream as Lord Shaper and dream as kind of I almost want to say the patron saint of creators, right? But he's the endless of creation, right? In some ways, but he's constantly taking things from other people's dreams. And unless the idea is that the dreaming actually provides everything that when you have a dream at night, Glenn, that the dreaming is what creates that instead of your mind creating at least some of that, then Okay, it's the Dreamings to take back, but we know that that's not true because Dream has given the speech to Desire, which we, you know, in the prior arc, about the importance of mortals and the importance that they play. And we know that there are things that Dream himself did not have the power to manifest in the Dreaming when he escaped, and he had to grab pieces of clothing even from Dreamers' minds – And so we know that there are powers from the minds of those who are dreaming, which means Dream is taking creations that other beings have created and doing what he wants with them. And, you know, no harm. The the damage is de minimis, if you will, as far as we can tell. So this idea of like, no, no, we need to respect the original creator is that's, I think he's taking the easy way out. That, that's my interpretation. And I don't, I don't blame him, frankly, because it's a real complicated thing. Um, there is the more compelling argument for what he should do with the realm is to resolve the. Instigating, uh inciting incident of all this, which is that he made a mistake in regards to Nada and needs to do something about her. But as we'll see, he's got a solution for that. So if he already has that solution in mind by this point, he now is free to do the thing that lets him, you know, it, it, this lets him pass the buck. Someone else takes it from him. It's an excuse. It also lets him, though, pretend that that excuse is bound in some kind of a, greater structure of rules and laws which we know that dream loves his rules and laws but this is one of those times in which i think he's taking advantage of the existence of those those rules and laws to get away with not having to make a decision but uh, what are your thoughts on any of that (laughs) Well, this is this is my feeling as well. I do feel
0: that Dream has just taken the easy way out that he's used this as an excuse here. I'll I have some reasons for thinking that as well, but also more questions about what's going on here. But I have to respond to some of the things you've said, Brent. It's just your description of how the dreaming functions as both in part created by Dream himself, but then also augmented by things that dreamers are doing. It just made me feel like the way to think about the, the dreaming is as a, an MMORPG, <laughs> where it's this world that has been made by some creatives right some creative professionals have made this sandbox for other people to go play in and do their own things with but yet the people who are doing that don't don't have ownership over anything that they're doing within the the realm of that game. All of that is reserved to the person who's created the sandbox itself, even if those people have not created the the people playing in the sandbox in that way. Uh, and I, I don't know that's perhaps a really interesting way to think about how the dreaming functions that had not occurred to me before.
1: Yeah. And in some ways, there's a lot of freedom here. So the individual user experience is that they're able to create mods within the game, but they don't own the game, but they're able to create mods that let them create a fun hat to wear that they, you know, get to see their great aunt who passed away years ago. Like, you know, those are all things that they are able to bring to the shared experience. And so There's not necessarily a case to democratize the dreaming, if you will. Um, It very much still is his realm, but he is not the sole creator in it. You know, his library is not ideas that he is implanting in the heads of authors. His library is ideas that authors dream of that are not ever written, right? Um, Which means they're the creators. He's just the one who's – Having Lucian nicely catalog them, um, and having the best job ever every time I think about it.
0: Right, he's done half of the work of making the library in the sense that he's made this really awesome space for the library. But it's up to us, right, to populate that with our ideas for stories and so on. Uh, and that's a really great uh, kind of symbiotic relationship between dream and the dreamers that we see playing out in the dreaming. That's 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 really awesome. I'm, I'm happy to be thinking about it in those terms. I, I want to think about what you've said about hell also though and and you know does uh, the Abrahamic God own hell or does Lucifer own hell I won't say too much about that here because in the wrap up episode which we're we're getting to in only two episodes from now, I want to think a lot about hell and, and Lucifer, the way hell and Lucifer have been depicted uh, in art and literature over you know, the sort of long durée. But there's a real tension in medieval depictions of Lucifer or, or, or Satan or the devil in that he's sometimes depicted as the king of hell with a crown on, that hell is a domain that Satan or Lucifer or the devil rules. But at the same time, hell is also a prison for Satan, Lucifer, the devil, that is then clearly actually the possession of the creator of of God, the Abrahamic God. And in medieval culture, medieval culture, frankly, is just having it both ways. And it does seem like that's kind of happening here as as well, right? That we have this sense that, you know, Lucifer is in hell because, uh, you know, of the of the fall, that he, he fell and wound up here and he's been stuck there. But then he has actually decided to leave and to, in doing so, give the deed to this place to whomever he wants. It doesn't seem to revert immediately back to the creator. And you're right, the creator here, the Abrahamic God, doesn't seem to have these uh, have this as uh, a property right but i think interestingly also gaiman here is doing a little more world building about exactly who this creator is and in fact when we first encountered the angels here in Season of Mist we talked about whether or not the Abrahamic god is really the creator god of this universe the universe of the sandman the universe of uh, DC comics and i think that we came down on the side of yeah that's that's what gaiman is is doing here he's he's giving us an abrahamic religion uh, world, um, he's giving us a world here in which much of the cosmology of the Abrahamic religions is true. But in this issue, he's really going to great lengths to refer to that God as the creator of the angels and the creator of hell, but not necessarily the creator of everything. And he does not seem to regard this figure as someone uh, from whom he needs to take orders.
1: Well, and he's Also, not setting this creator up as necessarily sitting over the creation of all of these other gods who are also in present in the issue. It's a different kind of thing because we also don't see the creator present. So I I think it's intentionally left vague, and and I might have been too rash to suggest that you know the creator. Maybe the creator does still own hell. I was more um, thinking about the dreaming in that regard. But I think there is a tension that we can revisit in the wrap up about was Lucifer's role the role of the sovereign or was Lucifer's role the role of, you know, the caretaker of hell, you know, whose responsibility that is. And I think that there'll be more. We're going to hear about that um even the next issue Um in particular. We'll have excuse to revisit some of that language. But uh I think here uh, Neil Gaiman is doing a good job kind of. Walking a thin line without having to flesh too much out, but uh, allowing all of these various representations of God and gods to kind of simultaneously exist, coexist, and not cause an existential crisis for any given one of these characters uh, relative to each other, Uh, while also layering in his own mythology, which is dream is a thing that he created, right? It's not worth uh, going panel by panel through this, but, um, I really enjoyed on each of my rereads of this uh, issue, just going through the various reactions that some of the parties have who are there to dream, who I think is quite enjoying getting, giving this little speech about how he can't give it away because he's already given it away. Um, <laughs> which is just a fun bit of, um, you know, panel layout um, and just a wonderful use of the comics art form here and just kind of to lay out kind of the progression of the plot as well as some jokes at the expense of many of the people who are there, but also the very different personalities that come through in their reactions. I mean, Clericon
0: is excited at this because he, he misunderstands at first, right? Mm-hmm. And so he thinks that what Dream is saying is that hell is going to remain closed. I suppose it's a question, though, if if hell is now under the dominion of heaven again and it's being run by angels, are the angels going to be collecting this tithe
1: of fairies? I Yeah, I mean, I think that they will. Because um, I think that, again, Ramiel has now rebelled and fallen to the ground and duma has chosen to fallen to the the, the 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 clay of the ground uh, similar to the decision that lucifer made in different ways but still um i imagine it's going to proceed but we might have more on that we can discuss uh next issue um because we'll get a little bit more on um the buddy cop story of ramiel and duma hanging out in hell <laughs> yeah. And I don't remember
0: actually if we ever really encounter this business the business about the, the tithe, the fairy tithe to hell again in Sandman, but it's actually perhaps like top of my list of things that I hope do show up in, in future issues. So uh, I'll be looking out for that. Well, Brent, you brought up that, of course, by making this choice, Dream has not saved Nada, and that this is something that still needs resolution, and uh, we're going to go get part of that resolution right now. So immediately after the announcement and this explanation, Azazel says that, well, he's going to start slowly devouring Nada's soul, as he, you know, threatened to do in the previous issue. And of course, Nada's soul is already imprisoned within him, and so also is Karanzan. But Dream is not about to let that happen. And he says that the rules of hospitality apply to all his guests, even the ones that he didn't know about. And Azazel renounces Dream's hospitality and he challenges Dream to a fight because, well, he would also like to eat Dream's soul too. And so Dream... Goes into Azazel, which is some kind of cool, trippy starscape full of teeth. I mean, it's it's awesome. It's this is really co- very coolly illustrated, and Dream then finds and frees both Koronzan and Nada. And then when we see Dream again, he is holding a glass bowl with Azazel inside. It's it's all very reminiscent of the fight with D back in Preludes and Nocturnes in in this way, and of course the deal is that eh, Dream is going to keep Azazel imprisoned for a long long time, so that Azazel can think about what he did wrong. And Dream then puts this fishbowl in a trunk that is full of other objects. Uh, One of them is the skull of the Corinthian. But, Brent, I I wonder if you
1: know what any of these other objects are. I do know what some of them are, and some of them we will visit in coming issues. Uh, The pocket watch and the bottled city both uh, uh, are things that come up fairly, well, In the next 20 or 30 issues, so uh, we'll revisit those. I'm not sure what all of the items are, though. The penny or whatever coin is, I'm not sure what that is. The urn, maybe? I don't know what that is. The other thing, which could be another urn, or it could be part of a model tower, or it could be some kind of a tinkered uh, or beer stein. I'm not sure what that is. And then the other thing here is a, a book, Uh, It could be a book. I interpreted that to be some kind of a bound package. So it's like a box within a box. It's something that's got a wonderful latch on it. Um, So it could be a a large book or it could be um, some kind of a package. I I don't know. So some of the stuff uh, we definitely will see again. Um, Some, I don't know. There's a ring in there too. Um, Maybe it's the ring of power in case. uh, It's obviously,
0: obviously the ring of power.
1: (laughs) Well, I I want
0: to think that this chest is also bigger on the inside, you know, like the TARDIS, and so there's a lot more stuff even that we're not we're not seeing here. But yeah, I think just even though we are going to get some of this spelled out for us in in issues to come or story arcs to come, uh, this chest is a, I think an excellent writing prompt, right? Just to pick one of these objects and tell the story of you know what it is, how it got locked up in this chest by Dream. I think that's a, a cool story prompt.
1: And I also love the outside shot of the chest when he closes it because it, Kelly Jones's art makes it look like it's just the kind of pirate chest that uh, <laughs> you imagine when you're a small child and pirates are super cool and not uh, international criminals. And it just looks like this is, this is his collection of pirate.
0: Yeah, I mean, presumably he actually buries this in the sand on an island in the Caribbean and has a secret map somewhere with an X on it. Yes. And, uh, you know, and some clues and so on, right? That's another story prompt, right? How do, you, how do you find out where Dream's chest is is buried, where it's hidden? How do you get to this? Actually, that's an RPG campaign I would love to play.
1: That's an RPG campaign I love to play. That's also a uh, a map I would love to have a version to hang on my wall of just the dreaming <laughs> and somewhere there's just an X. <laughs>
0: Yes, I would love to see that. I think there's a missed opportunity here for more more pirate stuff.
1: <laughs> but as you said, I love the art here with uh, Azizel and the way he looks. Um, and then some of the wonderful art that Kelly Jones and company give us when Dream enters him and you see his cape flying out the back. And uh, there's just there's a lot of fun to be had here. And I really I find the whole interaction very satisfying. I do have to say, Glenn, and I have to ask your opinion on this, too. I'm torn because while I, on the one hand, I really like this interaction and kind of the clever way that Dream deals with it. It also feels a lot like just a repeat of how Dream dealt with Dr. Destiny in some ways. It it really did. I, I was maybe disappointed, I think,
0: in Azazel this just doesn't seem like a smart choice. And we've seen Azazel be pretty smart up until this, this point. And uh, you know, I might have liked a little more internal deliberation that we could have seen from Azazel, where he's he's thinking about what is the right move here? You know, should I just withdraw, leave the dreaming still with these hostages? Should I, you know, continue to threaten to devour them until I can, you know, at least extract something, some kind of concession from Dream in some way, whatever that might be? Uh, You know, or does he think that doing any of that's going to make Dream a permanent enemy, and it's better to just have it out now, um, even though, as Dream says, this is the stupidest possible place to do that. It's the center of his power. So again, you know, leaving would have been still a wiser choice. And so, yeah, that felt like suddenly Azazel was a little bit stupider than he has been depicted up to this point and yeah so I, I i'm with you on that i'm with you on that
1: however as i think about azazel and the pseudo populist speech making that he was giving in earlier issues in this run and commentary on how egomaniacal um and idiotic uh many politicians who give pseudo populist speeches are <laughs> um you know Maybe it does work and maybe it's just he, he is all, uh, he is all teeth and, uh, not a lot of gut. I don't, I don't know. And it does give us an excuse to have the wonderful, uh, snow globe with Ziza, which I also would love to have for my. For my Christmas tree, I just want to mention um, <laughs> that I want the the Azizel hanging in a globe uh, with all those smiling, uh, bitey teeth uh, hidden away um, as a terrifying ornament. I guess maybe more for some kind of a Halloween tree now that I am thinking about it and saying it out loud, but either way. Yeah. Or I might just use it as a paperweight,
0: but, uh, you know, it's, it's not true while we're recording this, but presumably, hopefully as, as this is airing, as people are listening to it, Hey, the Sandman's a hit TV show now. So maybe Christmas ornaments from Hallmark are, you know, Sandman <laughs> Christmas ornaments from Hallmark is like an actual thing we could go get, uh, at this point. So we'll have to go check that out. But, uh, yeah, we've come to the the end now Though we're still going to want to talk about the, the cover and the title and, uh, uh favorite panel. But we have come to the end now and the embassies are departing and we learn a few things about them as they say goodbye to Dream. The demons are going back to hell. Uh, The angels have recalled them and already a line is forming. Dream tells Bast that he wants to respect his brother's desire for privacy, but Bast offers now to share what she does know about this brother at really any time that Dream wants. And I suspect that we can look for this to come back at some point. And finally, when we see the Norse contingent, Thor has a hand over Loki's mouth. And when he removes it, Loki shouts, no, you do not understand. This is wrong. And then Thor knocks him unconscious with a punch. So we don't find out what Loki means. But again, I think we can look for this to come back at some point. And we also learn that Claricon and Susano Woe have both asked if they can stay in the palace an extra day, and presumably this is so that they can speak further with Dream. And then Dream is alone with Matthew the Raven, and he wants Matthew to tell Nada that he requests her company this evening. He doesn't really want to talk with her, and he expects that she doesn't really want to talk with him either. But still, they will talk. And that's the end of the issue.
1: Yeah. And I really like, and it, you know, Neil didn't bother giving us the interaction with necessarily everyone on the way out, but I, I do like a lot of these interactions that he has. Um, Kilderkin from Lords of Order um, has a nice little note. The wonderful depiction of uh, Jemmy, who is uh, wearing her Sunday best maybe at this point, but uh, <laughs> the balloon has been replaced by a fish. Um, and in the script, apparently, according to Leslie Klinger, uh, Neil Gaiman says, I don't know why she's got a flying fish on a piece of string. So um, it's always fun th- to see scripts that say, and it should look like this. And I don't know why it looks like this, but it does. And I also really, I had to laugh, Glenn, because when the Egyptian delegation takes off the household god, when he is taking off, he he just has this nice little nice meaning you. And he... In Shadow, before we've seen him with torsos and some braided hair, here he's just kind of a scruffy, either beard or shadowed face and hair, and he's very short. And it, it reminded me of, um I've seen some comic in, uh, interpretations of Alan Moore, where he is just uh, a squat. Uh, Very hairy kind of bearded thing who's just running around. Um, So it reminded me of either that or for some reason it reminded me of um, a comic book that was coming out after this um, in the 90s from uh, Telson Press called Star Child. Where there was a character – James A. Owen uh, is the uh, creator of Star Child. Um, There was a character called Little Neil, where it was just Little Neil Gaiman who happened to visit some kind of fantasy tavern. Um, And so this – to me, my mind this time, uh, this, the last reading I had of this um, it inserted that, that was just kind of the Neil Gaiman insert, in which uh, if Neil Gaiman happened to be an Egyptian god, um, his response upon leaving would just be uh, "nice meeting you to dream," because of course, why would why would it not?
0: I was thinking it looked like a, a Bronze Age Thor and oaken shield, but uh, I, I like <laughs> little Neil, and I think we need to we definitely need to go cover that somewhere. Well, a lot of what's happening here is is still setting up for the epilogue that we're going to get in next issue and, and potentially also for things to come. So we'll leave this one here, but and let's go talk about the, the cover, Brent. Uh, it's, uh, it's an angel. Uh, this one, I think, is actually fairly straightforward, certainly compared to last time, but straightforward as it is. It is also very cool and very eerie.
1: Yeah, it's very eerie um, and it's almost monochromatic and it, it really works well in that regard. It it feels like it's an image in an angel that's, you know, maybe caught on film in some way, looks to me like it's falling or has just fallen. Uh, but it could also be, you know, the gray from almost a tombstone or something or a crypt door Um kind of a stone backdrop to it um, more than anything else um, with the way that they're kind of some harsh uh, kind of block cuttings of different parts of the concrete and the way it's been poured. Um, and, you know, the, the angelic creature um, is squat a little bit, like it just, uh you know, suddenly has been pushed down and is in some amount of distress um, or maybe trying to push back against gravity um, with its hand kind of, in front of it. And it's hard to tell exactly how it is, but it just, it reads to me like a lot of anguish, which I think very much this evokes how Ramiel, uh, feels, um, and in some ways was depicted by the art in the issue. So I, I really like it. W- what are your thoughts on the cover? Yeah, I really really love this as well. And you you're right. I mean, anguish is definitely the word here
0: and and this clearly is a depiction of either Ramiel or Duma arriving in the the pit. We don't see, you know, hell depicted the here the way that we see it depicted, you know, inside the pages of the Sandman, but here it is a, almost kind of a black Void with then also as you say Brent some things that seem to be like concrete around it so it's kind of a, a Kafka esque uh, uh, version of of hell here and the glowing angel especially the wings really contrast against that uh, you know I know in the wrap up episode we will actually talk about our, our favorite covers but I, I'll say here that this is probably going to be a strong candidate for me
1: so the subtitle of this issue. Um is uh, quite a mouthful, uh, in which the vexing question of the sovereignty of hell is finally settled to the satisfaction of some, the finer points of hospitality, and in which it is demonstrated that while some may fall, others are pushed. Here is my question for you, Glenn. Is there satisfaction of anyone other than dream? Yeah, I think
0: I think it's satisfaction of one and it's dream, right? I don't think it's uh, satisfaction of some, which is interesting to think about it that way i mean i suppose that uh, dream is the only person who we actually see appearing in the issue who is satisfied because i you know i assume that uh, it's safe to say that the creator is also satisfied so perhaps perhaps that constitutes some right the two of them are enough to constitute some but yeah i mean this is uh, certainly satisfaction right is not the uh, not the mood of this issue
1: yeah, it's really not, um, and I guess in the sense that uh, the creator and in some ways dreams contain multitudes, then I guess maybe some in the implicit plural works, but uh, I feel like uh, most people not very satisfied with this response at all. The finer points of hospitality uh, I think is a nice, succinct way to discuss, though, the entire uh, – what happens with Azizel and Corinzan and uh, Pornado.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great phrase, and and honestly, it could be the subtitle for essentially the whole rest of Sandman.
1: Also, the Iliad.
0: <laughs> well, yes, and of course, we'll we'll be talking more about that in the future as well. Uh, Brent, I wanted to know what you made of this last clause, uh, and in which it is demonstrated that while some may fall, others are pushed. Uh, is this referring to Duma and Remiel here as being pushed into hell
1: by the creator? I think it very much is. Um, uh, Lucifer, in his arrogance and ignorance, may not understand the results of the actions that he took so long ago, and so it results in his fall. Um, but in this case, Ramiel and Duma, and, and you know, I. I have to remember sometimes, and I, I forget before I start this run, that Ramiel and Duma are not here as everyone else is to contend for the key. They're here merely to observe. Like they were told by their boss, hey, um, leave the Silver City, um, and go just watch what's going on here. And there they are, just floating around. They're not eating, they don't eat, they don't drink, they're not dreaming, they're not partaking in, you know, Egyptian god kings they're just there and then all of a sudden hey yeah so this is what's going to happen and the emotional violence that ramiel um and duma are then subjected to is you know very much you know could be represented as a pushing someone off of a cliff in some ways right
0: yeah i definitely think so and this synopsis here then doesn't paint the creator in a particularly good light here. I mean, definitely you know, giving him the agency. And I, I think your explanation of of you know, what Duma and Remiel have been told in, in being sent here, I mean, it's it seems kind of, you know, it's trickery, really. And trickery, of course, is, well, that's that's Lucifer's purview, right, Is is trickery. And in fact, this is actually something that medieval theologians really grappled with in thinking about who is Lucifer? Who is Satan? And and what is that entity's role in Hell? So that that's something else that we can take up in the wrap up
1: episode too. Yeah, and it's it, it's Lucifer as well as Loki, um, and we'll have an excuse even next issue to revisit both of them, and we'll also get a chance, um, spoiler, to uh, check in on how Ramiel and Duma are doing. I think it comes down to also how much you might sympathize or respect the idea of free will among an angel. Um, Because if you assume that free will is something that is not for them, and if they try to aspire to that, then they have fallen a la Lucifer, then it's not necessarily as bad an outcome. If these are merely, we've put these tools in the shed in a different part of the shed, and they may wish that they were in sunlight, but they're not. Um, Versus, if this was done to a uh, mortal human in the way that in Abrahamic religions it's depicted, the treatment of of people, um, and in our general kind of even in a secular humanist view, the way that you view the appropriate treatment of a human being—they're um, not human beings. Um, so maybe it's fine. Right, and we'll be revisiting.
0: Angels, as well as a topic in the wrap-up episode, because hey, it turns out there's an awful lot going on uh, in *Season of Mist* in terms of world building and how it intersects with our own uh, our own lore and and mythoses in in the real world as well. So it could be a lot to talk about there. But let's move on to talking favorite panels this time. And I will just do the duty here, Brent, of announcing to listeners that you and I have had a bit of a meta conversation off mic here in which we realized that what we wanted to do was talk about the splash page for a whole lot more, the The title page, this two-page splash here. We did talk about what's going on in sort of the bottom half of this panel already. We went through who's here and what they look like and so on. But uh, there is so much happening in this ceiling. I adore this ceiling. It's just just marvelous. I I want to call it a dome, Brent, but I, I think technically, uh, well, I don't really know enough about architecture to really know what I'm talking about, but I suspect that technically this is called an arcaded ceiling, but that might not quite be right. But in any case, um, there's a big sort of bulbous uh, semicircle type of thing going on uh, with also... Uh, uh, with also something that I definitely would describe as kind of arcades, all of which is just to say that there is a lot of surface area up there and it's all covered in art.
1: It is. And it's covered in very different styles of art. Some of it very much reminds me of kind of throwback Victorian era or kind of uh, later than that. Some of it just looks like ink blots to me. Um, other parts remind me very much of kind of a, a Mesoamerican kind of uh, art. There's just so much going on in all of these kind of subsections of the ceiling and some kind of maybe script at the top in a language that none of us know it's just it's a it's great,
0: yeah, I think most of the the material that you described as as ink blots, which is the word I was going to use as well, is. Well it's not real it's by which I mean it doesn't reflect something that really exists in our world but I think it is kind of meant to stand in for that uh, like stand in for uh, prehistoric cultures uh, that we don't know anything about and and so and so on uh, who might have had um, this type of art or even expressed languages in, in this type of a, a script or something like that because all of the art that we can clearly understand is very much uh, Western and, and really even European, uh, well really modern european i'll say although some of it depicting things that are pre-modern and there's actually a scheme to the way that that is depicted so at the the bottom of the the ceiling what really is is part of the the wall uh where it begins to to curve into this uh this this dome there we're actually seeing depictions of classical antiquity though all of it really looking like the way that uh, 19th century romanticism would depict classical antiquity but we have uh, two figures uh, with instruments. It's a, a lyre and a, a lute. Uh, we get some some figures in uh, in what appear to be Greek togas as well. And then we have some uh, bucolic or nature depictions also, uh, one of them perhaps actually being uh, a, a, an ancient temple, like a place of worship, although it also might be a burial site there. But certainly there are some trees. They're probably laurel trees or olive trees or something like that. And one of these is very clearly a riff on the extraordinarily famous painting called Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog that was done by the the. German Romantic, uh, early 19th century German Romantic painter Caspar David Friedrich. Uh, people may not actually know that painting specifically, but when you look it up, you will realize that you have seen thousands of riffs on that. It essentially supplies, uh, I don't know, 60 to 70 percent of all movie posters that you have ever seen, and and that there, there is something akin to this going on here as well. And I, I think all of this is just absolutely stunning.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's all really great. Um, And you you mentioned the two figures with the musical instruments. That's kind of the romantic um, view of a neoclassical style. And there, my mind immediately went to thinking about the Muses and Calliope. And I actually thought of it as a brief kind of touching reference that perhaps Dream was making to his former lover in some way, or at least her, her siblings.
0: Nope. I yeah. I agree completely. I mean, even though they both have instruments, I suspect that the the one with the lute is going to be music, and the one with the lyre is going to be poetry, right? Because you have a little bit of a, a a lyre playing behind you as you're reciting your poetry, at least in the way that nineteenth uh, century Romantic people conceived of of how you know Homer and so on operated. And then above that, where we're still getting clear artistic depictions of things, there we're actually seeing largely depictions of the Middle Ages and early modernity, though, again, clearly through the lens of the 19th century. I mean, much of this now actually looks like the illustrations that you would get in late Victorian uh, books, especially kids' books. So if you were reading uh, you know, an adventure novel about crusaders, well, uh, there's an illustration that I think would come straight out of one of those books. In fact, two illustrations here on the ceiling that could come straight out of a book like that. Uh, we also get a, a sailing ship, which I'm going to choose, Brent to believe is the pirate ship, which is currently carrying Dream's treasure chest uh, as it is approaching the island where he is going to bury it, and 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 so on. There are other things like that here as well. So there's a bit of, uh, of chronology of European history, the way that it exists in the imagination of, I think, specifically 19th century Britons that has gone into the decoration of this ceiling. And it almost feels like you know, dream may have created this wholesale himself, but it almost feels to me like this is the dream of some late Victorian architect.
1: I mean, I think that definitely the way that the uh, structurally the arches are laid out, that might be the case. I'm wondering, though, on particularly the more we move to the right, the more it could be that there are the ideas and dreams of multiple people who, again, are kind of. Uh, at play here. Um, and even, you know, some of the panels with the tower and stuff, I, I actually read that as like a Shinto shrine maybe. Um, and as I said before, there's some markings that strike me as kind of Mesoamerican. Um, there's a figure who is completely uh, wrapped in clothing who could be from any particular background. but uh, But definitely there's a lot of Western European influence going on in, in the things in the upper left. Um, so, uh, but I, th- I think it's, it's just really a, a great, and wonderful, uh, collage of things and ideas.
0: I what I would really like to see is what this looks like, uh, you know, if we tilt the camera around and you can see the other side of it and really, of course, see the whole thing because I guess really we are seeing only half of it. We're seeing sort of one uh, long wall of it, which is where most of the art that I've been talking about appears. And then the ink blots that you've been talking about appear on kind of a short end of it. But, you know, each of these has a matching pair on the other side that we don't get to see. And I would love to fill that in. I would love to know what that,
1: what, what's what's there. One thing I wasn't sure of, Glenn, I was wondering what your thoughts were is what are the cherubs doing like those are not part of the wall they're hanging some kind of a uh, a large tarp of some kind and i i i I wasn't sure if there was something that I was supposed to be reading from that. Did that um strike you as referencing any particular thing?
0: I was pretty confused by this when i when I first encountered this, you know doing the reading here for the podcast, I actually thought that these Cherubs, which, you know, these are. Uh, little naked children. That that's what we're seeing here. They don't actually have any wings, but I think it's they're up in the air. They've got you know white cloth. So you know I think it's fair to say that these are cherubs, and cherub is a, a type of angel. And so I thought that what was happening here, uh, in that there are seem to be two things that are uh, kind of you know, vertical things that are covered here with this white cloth. I thought these cherubs were covering up Duma and Remiel to like keep them separate from every. Else, for some reason, but then of course we turn the page and realize that as this is happening, Duma and Remiel are, are somewhere else, and so probably this doesn't have anything to do with them. But it still might actually have something to do with them. But nonetheless, like, what is it they're covering up up there? You know, it, it's un, unclear to me. Unclear.
1: Yeah, it's it's very unclear to me. Um, so listener, if you have any thoughts as to what they might be, uh, both of us would love to hear. I did want to also uh mention in the cast of characters, and we discussed this before there's a couple of things we had not touched on uh below in the gallery um, one, we had heard that. Specifically, the Greek gods are not in attendance um, because perhaps they know something we do not, um, according to the faceless man and the uh, wizard in the high hat. Uh, But the one particular knight with the uh, plumage off of his helmet uh, is reminiscent to the way that the god Ares is frequently depicted in Wonder Woman comics. So I wonder if this is supposed to be Mars or some other equivalent figure so that was the first thing i wanted to mention but the thing i want to mention more than that is we see loki standing next to and sizing someone up and they appear to be similar proportions right and and that that
0: someone is susanoo who is uh, one of the two people who has requested to remain in the dreaming for a little bit longer presumably to talk to dream so we will encounter him
1: again next issue yeah. Um, so it might be interesting to see, um, what it all is going in there. Cause it looks like they might be exchanging some comments the way that their faces are looking, but this panel is just gorgeous. And I think that, uh, it, it is, there's so much going on here. Um, even though we have so little dialogue, um, that, uh, <laughs> uh, it was bound to be, uh, the favorite of at least one of us. And as you said, Glenn, it is the favorite of both of us for this particular issue.
0: Yeah and I think it's the first time we've actually done that but we knew also that we were going to have enough to say about it that neither of us needed to use our our backup here to to fill up to fill up airtime or something like that. So yeah, this was uh, unprecedented but I think well worth it. It is a, a gorgeous panel. I think, you know, again, good chance that this will be a strong contender perhaps for for both of us for our favorite panel of the entire uh story arc. But uh we will have that conversation two episodes hence. And in the meantime, we still have one more installment here in the story before we get to that wrap-up
1: episode. But for now, that is going to do it for this one. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like to hear our bonus series about Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, please
0: join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. And we'll be back next month with Season of Mists Chapter 7 or Chapter Infinity, depending on where you're reading it, although I think we might just end up calling it the epilogue. But in any case, until then, pleasant dreams.